The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. <clears throat> so, good day. And we'll continue here in the fourth talk on the first noble truth, the truth of suffering. And nicely today is the day of, we commemorate the Buddha's awakening, awakening from suffering or freedom from suffering, the great momentous uh, experience that was the beginning of the Buddha setting in motion a practice, a teaching that has come down to us, that momentum has continued from that night that the Buddha sat under the full moon of May. And the myth of the Buddha is that he encountered sickness, old age, and death, and that inspired him to go for a search, the noble search it's called. And this idea of sickness, old age, and death to represent all human suffering, kind of the most kind of epitomizes the world of suffering that we're in. And that rather than continuing to suffer more, or just let the suffering continue forever, that there's a search, there's a deep inquiry, deep uh, uh, search for freedom from suffering. And uh, when people encounter suffering in all its many forms and are troubled by it, there are two directions that can take us. It can either take us uh, in some ways to suffer more or to suffer less and towards freedom of suffering. And ways that we suffer more is by reacting to suffering, uh, our own suffering and distress and sorrow, grief, disappointments, with uh, either fight, with fight, fighting against something, flight, they say, running away, or freezing. That's the kind of three categories often used to represent an unhealthy way of responding to challenges. For someone who's a practitioner, there's the opposite of that. There's a different direction than that. Instead of fight, one response to suffering is compassion, to approach and help, to uh, not approach to fight, but to approach to support and help and help uh, alleviate suffering wherever we can. Another healthy approach is called uh, samvega, samvega. It's a Buddhist word that I think of as the urgency of practice, the inspiration to practice, to engage in the search for freedom from suffering. And instead of flight running away, it is a turning backwards into oneself, not to run away from suffering, but to get to the bottom of it, to really resolve it and be honest about it and really look at it directly and become free of it. And then um, this idea of freeze, uh, instead of freezing, uh, there is a kind of becoming still and quiet that's possible in a very healthy way. And that is to be still and gaze upon everything kindly. Gaze upon everything with care. 
So which of these directions do we take? And the Dharma direction is to towards the alleviation of suffering, towards um, compassion, towards practice, towards looking upon all things in the moonlight of our kindness and our goodness and our care, while being still, and a certain equanimity and peace. And this noble search, this deep practice, is what Buddhism specializes in, to really kind of get to the bottom of our own distress, our own attachments, our own clinging. And to do that, one of the first tasks that emphasized is to really understand suffering, really look at suffering deeply. And um, to recognize it and really be present, to be still and look upon it kindly, look upon it non-reactively with equanimity. <clears throat> the, um, now, one of the things that are seen when we stop and really look at suffering, learn to be mindful of it. And this is the value of learning mindfulness is that we start seeing, being aware of things without so much of the filters of our stories, our interpretations, our commentary, and some of the generalized concepts by which we see things. But mindfulness takes us into the world of the present moment for sure, but even more than the present moment, to the direct experience of the present moment. Direct experience means the experience that's much more not immediate without being filtered through stories and commentaries and preferences and all this, all the, all this layers of stuff we can add on top of it. And um, the, um, um, and so as we go into seeing suffering, seeing our pain or sorrow or grief, uh, allowing it to be there, not being in conflict with it, not fighting it, escaping it, freezing, but really learning to gaze upon it deeply, we see that in the moment-to-moment experience of it, it's unfolding, it's flowing, it's moving, it's in constant, it's arising, it's passing, it's shifting and changing all the time. And what holds things into some idea that it's permanent and fixed is not the immediacy of experience, but rather is the way the mind interprets it or holds onto it or reacts to it. And so that's one of the values of calming the mind, settling the mind from its reactive mode, is that we start kind of being in the flow, in the stream of experience in a deeper way. It's phenomenally respectful, I believe, to allow our distress or sorrow or grief or anger or fear or rage to allow it to really just to be, in, especially in meditation, to let it course through us at the level of just letting it course, letting it just flow, letting it just be there, and in a certain kind of way to get out of the way of it. Not getting out of the way so we act on it or collapse into it, but rather we get out of the way so that it just flows without our active involvement in it. And this is one of the reasons why meditation is such a powerful um, arena for learning and being, because it's very few places in our human life where it's safe and appropriate to really let what's going on inside of us 
to have its full permission to be there, to help whatever is in there to feel safe, to be present, to be there, to flow. No matter what the anger, no matter what the fear, no matter what the sorrow, whatever the pain, distress, stress that we have, to hold it in, in a kind gaze, kind awareness, to be still and look upon it kindly, to help all that's inside of us, whatever's inside of us, whatever's happening in our mind, our hearts, to let it feel safe with us. So we're not fixing it, changing it, interpreting, commenting on it. It's a phenomenal process of just allowing it to be. As we settle down this way, we see how inconstant things are, how things arise and pass and rise and pass. Uh, In the English translations of the suttas, uh, there's a statement quoting the Buddha that whatever is impermanent is suffering. So I'll, I'll say more about the translation in a moment. But whatever is impermanent is suffering. So here we are, dropping down, quieting the mind, dwelling in the deepest uh, wellsprings of, of the flow of life, the stream of life. We're seeing the inconstant arising and passing of phenomena. And the Buddha says that that's anicca. It's impermanent. And uh, whatever is impermanent is suffering. So in a sense, this impermanent world that we live in, the changing world, inconstant world, there's something about it which has a nature of suffering. However, the important point to really appreciate here is that this deep connection to impermanence, the deep flow and the changing and constant nature of reality, that is also the medicine. That's also where we discover the freedom from suffering. It's kind of like um, the illness is the medicine. That if we really, uh, there's the, over and over again, the Buddha talks about it's the deep insight it, into impermanence. It's only possible for really present for it, really still looking upon it kindly, compassionately, and only seeing that, just really dropping into that flow of things arising and passing. Only then can we appreciate how much that suffering, dukkha, but also how that is liberating at the same time. If we only see the suffering, then we're standing back from it and not really entering into that flow. And, um, and so this word anicca, translated as impermanent, it might be not quite the best translation impermanent, even though it's the most common one. And it's a very important one to understand because of its connection to dukkha, to suffering, to distress, to unsatisfactoriness, to stress, to pain. And um, the word is, in Pali, is anicca. Anicca does not mean permanent, but rather means constant. And the an is the negative, and so it's non-constant, inconstant. And the difference between the word, English word inconstant and impermanence is some people see impermanence as being, um, it's going to end. Sooner or later it won't be here. It's not permanent, eventually it'll die or fade away or be broken. 
Inconstant means that it comes and goes. And it's in the deepest insights of vipassana practice, it's not just recognizing that things disappear once and for all, and that they will die, and mountains will decay, and all that. But rather, it's to be aware of the inconstancy of moment-to-moment experience. The flow, the stream of moment-to-moment experience that comes and goes, and comes and goes. And um, and uh, things are there and not there. Uh, things appear and disappear. Where, whether they actually disappear, like completely gone, they disappear in, in experience, how we experience them. Experience itself, this magical, special location that is how we perceive the world around us and the world within us. That perception, the way we take it in and perceive, that perception is in flux and changing. And in Buddhism, that perception of how we experience the world is the fundamental fulcrum of our life. It's kind of like the, the uh, neck of the hourglass. Everything goes through our experience of things, our perception of things. Uh, and, that, and, and so Buddhism sits right there at that door of experience, door of perception. So it's right there at that, in the middle of that neck of the vast world outside of us and the vast world inside, inside of us and just watches what happens in that world of experience. That is where the genesis is of suffering and freedom. Not in the vast world out there, not in the vast world inside in a certain way, but rather uh, right there in the moment-to-moment experience. And, um, and so there is where, if we can see suffering there, see stress, see tension, see dukkha, see unsatisfactoriness, see the painfulness of things there. That is what is liberating, to recognize that. And one of the ways it's liberating is that um, when there's very clear recognition, the recognition becomes lucid. Awareness becomes lucid. When our awareness becomes spacious, lucid, clear, so much so that we know we're aware, we really know this, wow, the amazement of being conscious, where what we're conscious of, what we're aware of in the flow of experience, becomes almost secondary to our capacity to be aware of it. We're not lost or sunk or preoccupied by what we are knowing. We still know clearly and lucidly, but it's the lucidity, the clarity in which we know. There is freedom, a certain kind of freedom, a certain kind of, just like the vast freedom of the moon, the full moon, to float in a cloudless sky in the middle of the night. It just floats and is there and it's lucid and clear. So with a clear, lucid, full moon of our mind, we can really, as we recognize with great clarity and peace, gazing upon all things kindly, there we can find a degree of freedom. And there is the path to full awakening. So thank you. 
and uh, for this reflections about dukkha, the first noble truth, and uh, one more talk tomorrow, and um, and tomorrow when we're done, um, I'm plan as I'll take a little bit of time for some questions uh, if you have any on this topic. So thank you very much. <laughs>